The two little things I do already that bring me such personal satisfaction are recycling and composting. I get excited on recycling day when I get to take out my recycling receptacle. Yes, it's Thursday. I get to take out the recycling. And if I accidentally throw something away that should be in recycling, I go fish it out. And you can't recycle the bags off of newspapers. The plastic bags Mm -hmm. get hung up in the machines that separate the recycling. A lot of people will throw those newspapers away and I can't tell in in their bag. I can't tell you how many of those things I've fished out. But also composting is so much fun to, yeah. to take it out and then you got to, you know, water it and rake it and do some stuff. But there's a feed store. You can also buy fishing worms there. So occasionally I get to stop on the way home and buy some worms to drop in the composting and that just so much fun. Hi, this is Joshua Spodek, and this is Leadership in the Environment. You're not the only one who cares about your impact enough to act. You're part of a global community undeterred by people saying, if others don't change first, then what I do doesn't matter, and other excuses. We've read the science. We can do this. This show is about personal responsibility, acting, and improving your life by your values. As guest after guest says, the challenge was hard, but thank you for getting me to do it. I wish I'd done it earlier. Listen on for leaders to inspire you, hear their struggles, and then act. Go to joshuaspodick.com slash podcast to commit to a public personal challenge of your own. You're not alone, and you don't have to wait for others. I talk a lot on this podcast about the lack of leadership that I see in the area of the environment. Many people talk, but don't do. Many others judge, but don't support which leads people who want to act to hold back on trying. While the mayors of Orlando and Orange County, Florida, went out of their ways and found me. Most guests I seek out, they found me. They took it on themselves to put themselves out there for judgment on an issue that they don't have to. Most don't do this, I believe, because it makes them feel exposed and vulnerable. But a top trait of effective leaders is that they like accountability. Look, I get that most people haven't yet gotten to where they see the future in reducing their pollution to the extent that I have. And I'm not close to where I bet you will be in a few years if I'm successful in helping change culture to embrace not polluting like we've embraced not smoking and not drunk driving. But the start is to act, which they've done. From a leadership perspective, for a public figure to step forward achieves more, even before his or her specific act, than whatever the outcome is of his or her first step. I call on anyone with a public following to follow Buddy and Jerry to seek out opportunities to publicly show their intention by sharing and acting on their environmental values. How big the effect is of your first change is nothing compared to your leading others. Jerry and Buddy are swimming upstream to make it easier so all who follow feel like they're swimming downstream. If you have influence and want to act, my goal on this podcast is to walk you through an authentic, genuine experience so listeners support you instead of judging you. Here are Buddy and Jerry, leaders of leaders. Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Buddy Dyer, the mayor of Orlando, and Jerry Demings, the mayor of Orange County. How are you guys doing? Great. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Uh, enjoying New York. Yeah, welcome to New York City. It's, uh, it's a hot, humid day, so I feel like you guys brought it with you. I got sunburn in preparation. Yeah, this is hot. This is not humid. Yeah, I was going to say, it's, I feel like we're not in your league. <laughs> and we don't have the fruit. I, I was thinking, I wonder if, this guy, if they're going to have some oranges with them. Well, what, what brings you to you guys? What brings you to New York City? Well, we're here to really uh, tell the world about some of the great things that we're doing in uh, the metropolitan Orlando area as it relates to uh, really growing businesses in our community. And so that's what it's all about, is to talk about the other half of Orlando, if you will. So we have this great brand name, Orlando, and everybody in the world knows Orlando, but they think Disney, Universal, and SeaWorld initially, and we want to make sure and the we magic. get the message. Uh, sorry. Yeah. And the magic. All right, good for you. Good. And Orlando City Lines. Okay, but we won't talk about that. Okay. Yeah. But in any event, we just uh, are working on getting out the other half of it. So you're telling me, what I know is that you guys are taking an initiative that not, that I think in a few years or maybe decades, hopefully years, a lot of cities will be doing what you guys are doing. But you guys are taking initiative to take steps environmentally speaking. And I'm curious, you don't have to, why take the Vanguard? 
Is that risky? And what sorts of things are you guys doing? I think it's risky not to date the Vanguard. Finally. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Yeah. And, you know, at this point, and we started more than 10 years ago with something called DreamWorks Orlando. But now it's even more important than it was then because the federal government has stepped away and it's leadership at the local government level that is pressing on the issue of climate change and what do we do about it. And there are more people that live in urbanized areas than ever in the history of the world. So most of the environmental damage that's being done is being done by people or practices that are being done in cities. So it's more important than ever that local government officials take the lead. How do you guys work together? You guys, this is probably old news for you guys. And I'm sorry if it's an obvious question, but how do two mayors work together? Do you have overlapping regions? We do. Uh, Orange County is the county. It's about a thousand square miles. Uh, But there are 13 cities within the county. Orlando is the largest city within the county. So the area is um, city and then unincorporated areas. So about 1.4 million people in the county, 800 plus thousand of them don't live in any city. Mm -hmm. So for those, uh, you know, it's all about urban services. And so how do we overlap? We have a mutual interest. I get to work with the mayor of Orlando really on a regular basis, which is why we're here on this uh, business venture together. And so we have to really look, uh, I think, holistically at overall sustainability issues for the whole region. And so we're uh, part of a collaborative that uh, makes this a priority in our region. And Jerry and I have known each other for a long time. He's had a number of roles. He was the police chief of Orlando, then the Sheriff of Orange County and has been the mayor of Orange County for seven months. Seven months now. <laughs> Something I, like that. I was in the state Senate for 10 years and I've been the mayor of Orlando for a little over 16 years now. So really in this capacity, we've only been working together for seven years, but we, we respect each other. We admire each other and we're able to work together. But as a region, I think there's no region in America that has a better sense of collaboration and partnership and cooperation and supporting each other. And we've been able to do a lot of big things because of that. So you've you've talked about collaboration, a holistic perspective, stepping in where other parts, other branches of the government aren't stepping up. And that, it feels like you're saying it's it's a risk not to. A lot of people would think it's a risk too. Can you go, can you share more about that? I mean, step in, because I, I, I think a lot of people are glad to hear people are doing what you guys are doing. Well, I think we stepped into this space in the Southeast United States before a lot of other cities did perhaps, or local governments, but not before the West Coast was doing it and uh, Chicago was doing it and New York was doing it and Boston was doing it perhaps. But I became convinced that we needed to be in this area for a whole variety of reasons. Number one, the climate reason and what we're doing with the environment, that's an important reason. It's smart and sustainable in terms of economics, but maybe the most important reason, and we're on an economic development trip here, so I'm going to just suggest this is a reason too, we're in competition with cities all over the country and all over the world for the top talent. Who's going to attract and retain the top talent? And they look at things like quality of life. They look at whether they have mobility options. They look at whether they have access to cultural arts and professional sports. And they also look at whether you embrace diversity and equality, but they also look at whether you're a city that embraces sustainability and um, green ideals, green values. And what's something that you wish that voters knew or did more? I mean, are you getting total buy-in from your constituents on this? Or is it something you have to motivate people to do? Well, the, the one thing we have done is led by example. So all of the buildings in the city of Orlando in the last 10 years have been LEED certified. We've also uh, done energy audits on all of our buildings, or at least 55 of them. All of the, all of the buildings? Or just no, the government city buildings? buildings. Okay. City buildings. And we floated a green bond. And we're able to pay the debt service for that bond on the energy savings. And we invested, uh, we're able to pay for half of the new police station. We're switching to electric vehicles in our fleet. We're composting ourselves. So we're leading by example. The only place I can think of that we got a little bit of pushback was we wanted to um, assess commercial buildings and uh, give grades in terms of what buildings are energy efficient and what buildings are not. So it took a little convincing there, but that's probably the only place I can think of for pushback. And in fact, you know, we do recycling and it's been harder to get into existing commercial buildings because they're not set up for that. Mm-hmm. But the residents want 
recycling. And the residents want composting. So it's forcing some, I shouldn't say forcing, it's just encouraging landlords to provide opportunities for recycling. I think in some ways uh, you have to educate the public. Sometimes they don't know what they don't know, but if we fully educate them and make them aware of uh, some of the environmental challenges and uh, worst practices, if you will, uh, then they will uh, make an adjustment uh, to institute best practices in uh, their own uh, lifestyles. Yeah, I want you guys to come. <laughs> My building, which is not far from here, I, I, this, New York City will pick up your food scraps if you collect them, but you have to set up a program with them. So I have to go to my co-op board. And if I had you guys, then my co-op board would have accepted. They're like, you, I, they're giving me all sorts of stuff to go through. And if we, were, if we just required it, I think everybody wants it. Most of our programs are voluntary. I don't think we have too many that um, are compulsory. So it's voluntary recycling. It's voluntary composting. And it's, as Mayor Deming said, educating people and uh, having them want to participate, want them to be green. Yeah, I want to. And the people, the call board, uh, I'm not going to go the whole whole call board, but the way that you guys were talking about it is I don't hear that. I hear that from some parts of the New York City government, but it's not so coming so clear from the mayor's office in a way that, that my call board would say, let's do this, even though I believe it will be simple. And if you, if the city is doing it, you guys, the city buildings are doing some of these things first, that's going to make it easier for the residents. I presume I'm missing that. So when you said it, I was like, oh, that would make my job easier as a sustainability committee member. Anyway, what are some things that when you come up here to New York, is there things that people outside, I guess you want to come down and visit, I'm sure. Uh, is there anything that people can do more of that or to help you guys to, to make it easier, to make it more far-reaching, to bring it to other places? I presume you want to bring this out to others as well. Maybe it's a little early. I'm not sure. Well, the whole notion that if we're the only ones doing it, it's hard to affect climate change very much if the city of Orlando is the only city in Florida that's doing that. So we're encouraging, certainly encouraging every city to participate in whatever fashion they think is appropriate. Well, and we, we pretty much use a regional approach in our area uh, where the various jurisdictions now, kind of, we kind of see ourselves as one big metropolitan area. And so the collaboration across jurisdictional lines has improved in the, in the recent past. But, you know, for example, when we talk about sustainability, we all need water. You know, as human beings, if we don't have water, uh, then we die. We want clean water. And so when we talk about sustainability in our jurisdiction, we're talking to individuals about what they can do. Florida is very lush and green, and people use uh, sometimes uh, fertilizers and other pesticides on their products that runs off into uh, our lakes and and, uh, can adversely impact our environment in that way. So when we educate the public about it, when we educate the public about water conservation, uh, they understand uh, that uh, our long-term sustainability is directly related to how we uh, use water today uh, because it will impact us well into the future. Uh, so those are the types of programs that we've tried to institute where with stormwater fees, you know, it kind of discourages individuals who are wasting water. But then the public depends on the water that they drink. The drinking water is, is clean and uh, is free of uh uh, bad impurities. And so we have scientists at a, a lab uh, that uh, runs uh, thousands of tests each day to ensure that that water is safe for them to drink. And sometimes we don't really think about that. We just take it for granted that somebody is doing it, that this mm-hmm. water that we're using is, is uh, high quality water. Another area that we collaborate, the county owns the landfill and the recycling facility. So when we talk about recycling, we pick up the recycling, but we deliver it to their recycling facility at the landfill. And part of the composting effort and recycling is to keep as much of the waste stream out of the landfill as we can. And one of the goals we have in Orlando is to be a zero waste community by 2040. Yeah, I was very pleased to see in your materials, a lot of places they promote recycling, sometimes at the expense of reduction, you know, it's reduced, reuse, recycle. Most people seem to get that. But a lot of times people, like you, you're not just saying we're bringing in more solar or we're bringing in more renewable. You're saying we're going to 100% renewable, which means you're phasing out the fossil fuels, which not everybody gets. A lot of people bring in, they'll bring in solar and not displace fossil. People still keep doing that. 
And so reduction seems to be part of what you're talking about. Conservation is what you're talking about. There does seem to be, if you bring in more people, that's going to be a challenge for a finite amount of water or whatever resource. But was that by design? That I was very pleased to find that you guys were not just saying, we're going to bring in more solar or more recycling. We're also going to reduce other things. Well, you know, in all aspects of this, conservation is a big part of it. Conservation or efficiency. So if you can reduce the amount of power that you're using through having climate control or turning your lights off, as simple as that, or in terms of water usage and you're using uh, more native landscaping that doesn't require as much water, those are important things. But those are also done on an individual basis, right? It's each individual landowner, each individual homeowner or commercial property that's uh, making that decision to use conservation. Yeah, there's, there's, I mean, everyone has, I believe, the right to do what they want in their home. There's still cultural shifts. You, I mean, As mayors, it seems to me that you are at a leverage point of a system of cultural norms. Not, I mean, there's only so much any one person can do. But also that, first, the tip of the hat to you guys to, to include conservation as part of it. That's not, I don't take that as a given at all. And I've talked to a lot of people doing in businesses and, and government initiatives that are not doing that, and you guys are. Now, you're limited and you can't just tell people in their homes what they can and can't do. Uh, I mean, to some extent you can, but I appreciate that. What, what you well, said. I'll tell you, it's also a little bit of a balancing act because in the case of the city, we own the utility mm-hmm. that provides both uh, electric and water. So when you're talking about conservation, it means you're cutting into the revenue source from the uh, utility, mm-hmm. right? Because they make more money with the more power they sell or the more water that they sell. So you got to balance that. On the other hand, if you're trying to replace their coal burning units and replace it with solar, the more you can reduce the consumption, the easier it's going to be to do that. Yeah. I was, I was curious, you have various deadlines. You mentioned 2040 a minute ago. 2030 for all city services to be on renewable energy and 2050 citywide. And what sets the, the pace of that? And part of me thinks that's Right around the corner, and part of me thinks like that's a long time away. The utility has two coal or natural gas-fired units right now, and one, we're looking at how soon can we retire that, but you have sunk costs in it. You have certain investments that you have to return, and right now, quite honestly, the battery storage or capabilities are not such that you could go to 100% solar, and we don't have access to thermal. We really don't have access to wind, so the uh, unless other technologies are developed, solar is our primary alternative source of energy. So we think, though, that over the course of a decade and a decade and a half, that battery storage capabilities are going to be such that we can reach those goals. Yeah, because I think a lot, when I talk to a lot of people, environmental people, they don't seem to get what takes time. And it's not, you can't just snap your fingers oh, and we, make things happen. We have happen. groups right now that are like, you ought to be able to shut down the coal plant next year. It's like, no, we can't shut, unless we want to shut down half the power source for the city of Orlando, because we can't replace it that quickly. We can do it over time, but we can't do it overnight. So you have to be realistic about it. And so if you framed it at the beginning, I think maybe before we started recording as a, as a business initiative, but it feels like you must have some conservationists involved in this as well. I'm not sure what, what types of inputs are coming into this. There's definitely conservation groups and environmental groups. There's um, uh, the First 100, I think it's called, and it's a co-host group that is um, made up of some are environmentalists, but some are people that advocate for uh, disadvantaged people. So it's a whole cast of characters that are together, and uh, it's actually nice to have them involved. Yeah, and we see it as a partnership, you know, working with uh, our environmental organizations like the Sierra Club and some of the others in our area. We have, a, I guess, a wonderful problem uh, because we're a growing area, meaning that we're still vibrant, we're thriving, we're alive. We are growing at a net of nearly 1,500 people each week in our region. Uh, Within the county itself, we're growing by a net of about 1,000 people each week. but we have a tremendous number of people who come to visit. You know, 75 million uh, tourists come to visit our locality on an annual basis. And so that creates a lot of pressure. Uh, there's a lot of growth, uh, construction projects underway. But at the same time, we have to try to balance that out with preserving Florida's natural habitat as well uh, as human beings kind of encroach in where 
you know, the native species uh, once we live or thrive, we want them to continue to live and thrive uh, in, in our community. And so how we make public policy about where that growth occurs, uh, you know, our comprehensive plans have to take into consideration uh, some of those environmentally sensitive lands that, that we have in our area. And through so through our regulatory uh, responsibilities and, and policy making, uh, that drives some of the bigger picture. And so I think mayors uh, at the local level play at, in that space. Uh, we have to conform to both state law and then some of the federal laws as well. But uh, generally, everything starts at the local level, you know, how we educate the public about uh, the need to, to, for sustainability. And with all the growth, are there limits to the growth? Do you guys, or is that, do you have so much space to grow or so much resources to grow that you don't have to worry about that in your, in your well, you guys are mayors, or is, do you have to think about that stuff? Well, we want to grow responsibly. We uh, will look at how we plan out uh, the areas for um, high-density locations. We have infield building. Uh, Mayor Dyer can talk to you a, a lot about what's happening in downtown Orlando with uh, new residential and commercial developments occurring in, in that area. And so we try to coordinate that uh, where it, it makes sense to have uh, new projects uh, coming out of the ground. We try to make certain that we uh, connect our centers of commerce through various modes of transportation uh, or through the roadway infrastructure. So all of that gets taken into consideration in a, in a growing uh, metropolitan area. But we also have a rural community. Uh, we still have agriculture in, in our community where we still have some farmers there. And so uh, most people, when they come to Orlando, they don't see the farmland. That's not where they're going. But fortunately, we still have a lot of, uh, of vacant lands and undeveloped lands that uh, can sustain us well into the future in terms of our overall uh, population footprint. Okay. Yeah, it seems like a lot of people don't think too much about what are the limits to growth. They want to grow, but... Well, growing responsibly, uh, you know, in terms of space, we're the only large interior city. If you think of all the other cities that you know in Florida, they're largely along the coast, so they're bounded on one side or the other by water or maybe a couple sides by water, but we're not. We can grow 360 outward, but we could spend the next decade, quite honestly, doing infill development in within the bounds of the city of Orlando pretty easily. But with growth comes all types of challenges, not just environmental challenges, but traffic challenges. So transportation and transit are big challenges in Central Florida. And that also comes back to environmental issues because getting having one person, one car, obviously is not as good for the environment as having a train that's carrying 300 people uh, to a destination. So having 300 cars going there or one train, one train is better for the environment or one bus with 50 people on it's better than 50 cars going to the same destination. So we have a joint goal of increasing our transit system and making our transportation more environmentally friendly. I feel like I could almost be talking to some Europeans here. I mean, it, it, I'm, I'm glad to hear this. <laughs> I have Not to denigrate America, but... European you know. accent. <laughs> yeah. You can tell okay. that, right? Just the, the, the interest to change on something that I think, I think most people want. Governments have been a little slow to move in some areas. It's refreshing. Um, did you guys campaign on this? I should have looked this up, but is this something that... Absolutely. Our community will make certain that uh, we make it a high priority. Uh, you know, I think our community is uh, much better educated at this point about you know, the environment and what it means. We have uh, issues with... Um, making certain that we have enough food supplies even in our area. Um, as I indicated about, you know, we have uh, agriculture. The county is orange. It used to be uh, a lot of citrus, Oranges, uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, uh, in our county. Not so much anymore uh, due to, again, sometimes uh, some canker and other things were introduced from uh, other places uh, that really just kind of devastated Uh, Our citrus industry, uh, again, you know, damaged the environment when people uh, brought in plants and other things that had disease uh, within it. And and so I think as a as a community, 
if you come to Florida, uh, you come to Central Florida, uh, you will see uh, the recycling. You will see alternative modes of transportation. You'll see people riding bicycles, uh, you know, in, in downtown Orlando and, and what have you, you know, with our commitment to even alternative mobility modes. You'll see nature walks and bike trails and, and the likes in our area. And not necessarily the carbon issue, but if you think about Florida, other than the theme parks, it's our natural environment that draws people to Florida. So whether it's a pristine beach or it's our springs or it's the Everglades, people are coming to fish in Florida. They're coming to hunt in Florida. So that's a big part of who we are and what we've been. There's a a former guest of my podcast. You probably won't know his name, but Rob Greenfield is in Orlando for a year and he's and for the entire year, he's only eating what he's grown himself. So he's staying with someone and putting uh, planting vegetables and fruit in their yard. And then he's got some neighbors nearby that he's using their yards as well. And then things that he forages. So he's in Orlando? He's in Orlando, living only on what he can forage from, not even from, and it's only from wild, and stuff that he plants himself. And he's overflowing. He's like giving stuff away because it's such a lush. We allow front yard gardens and we allow chickens. Uh-huh. You can have three chickens. Does he have a chicken? I don't think he has any chickens. <laughs> but he's got, I mean, he shows the front lawn and it's like there's the before and after. And before it's like non-native grass that's like looking all brown. And then afterward, it's like he's, he walks through it. He's like, here's the coconuts, here's the bananas, here's the whatever. Here's like any, he, he, I don't know, fruit down there. It, it's cassava and so forth. And uh, he's living off of purely what he can grow there himself or what he can find on wild trees. I think he fishes as well. Okay. And you ask about have we ever had pushback. Front yard gardening was an area that was not necessarily uncontroversial. So People didn't like it? Uh, not necessarily. If you were the guys next door and you had you know somebody that wasn't keeping up their garden, it was uh-huh. just a big overgrown jungle or forest. So we have a few rules about that, but now it's generally accepted. And not everybody likes to hear chickens clucking in the backyard either. I always associated, we don't allow roosters. I always associated with, uh, well, in World War II, we had to get whatever food we could. And so we had victory gardens. And so people would garden in their yards, and it was to help the troops and, you know, create as much food as we could. You don't look like you're around for World War II to me. Oh, my grandfather served in the Pensacola, the USS Pensacola, which is not, I guess, in Orange County, but Florida. I've done a lot of stuff at West Point as well. And uh, they are also really getting on board this surprisingly, well, maybe not surprisingly, but ahead of the game. They've inspired me a lot on their environmental efforts. Feeling inspired? Do you like hearing others acting that you're not alone? Go to joshuaspodek.com slash podcast to hear other interviews, but even more valuable. Join the growing community of people who care enough to act, not just talk. Read the list of people who have taken on personal challenges and then commit to one yourself. Don't be surprised if you end up loving it, changing more, and finding people following you without you even trying. That's what happens when you improve your life by living by your values. So one thing I'd like to ask also of all my guests, and I haven't asked two people at once, but I like to ask people what the environment means to them. And you talked, I mean, it's, it's unique to everybody. And I wonder if either of you could share what the environment means to you. It's not always something that's uh, like a logical thing. It's often a memory or, or some, something from a childhood or something like that. I mean, when you're working on this, you don't have to do this. One could say you're getting votes or serving the people. It feels like this came from before that. So I I never thought of it as environmentalism or sustainability. Those are words that have come up, you know, in in decades. I'm 60. Mm -hmm. So I grew up in Osceola County, which is uh, part of where Disney World is, closest Kissimmee, closest city. And when I was there, it was pre-Disney. So there were 7,500 total residents, about 3,500 in Kissimmee, 1,500 in St. Cloud, and the rest in the rural area. But I grew up hunting and fishing and swimming in the lakes and uh, just taking advantage and enjoying that type of lifestyle. So that's just something that's intrinsic to me. When I think of it now, you, you know, you think about sustainable practices and keeping that environment so that your kids and grandkids have that same opportunity to experience Florida like we experienced Florida growing up. So I, I think that were, is where it's born of for me. So when you describe the I'm, I'm picturing like this Huckleberry Finn kind of. Uh, you said hunting and I fishing. Go and, that far, but well, that's over the Mississippi, a little farther away. <laughs> yeah, but, but kind of being. A, we swam in the lakes. You know, that's what we did. We weren't. Nobody was very wealthy. Uh, it was cattle country, 
So we used the natural environment. That was our playground. Forgive my ignorance. Cattle, cattle country in, in Florida? Me, yeah. Florida is, uh, produces more calves than anywhere in the country. So we're actually a little bit of Texas. And that's why I sound the way I do is Kissimmee was a cow town growing up. It was mostly ranches and some little bit of uh, citrus, but it was more cattle agriculture than anything and changed substantially when Disney came in. But there are still lots of old time cowboys that live there in Deseret, which is a ranch owned by the Mormon church is the largest single ranch in the country and births more calves than anywhere in the country. And uh, my dad was a cattle trucker growing up. So he hauled uh, calves from Florida to the, to the feed yards in Texas. So my first job growing up was shoveling manure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm trying not to make a politician joke here. (laughs) I used it all the time. Don't worry. It prepared me well for later on. And, and Jerry, do you mind if I ask you, a similar question. What, when you think of the environment, or what, what is it? What much keep, keeps you going? Uh, what much the same. Uh, the man and I are the same age, and so uh, growing up in Orlando uh, is exactly right. We all had a community garden, a backyard garden, and so we grew a certain amount of our own food. But again, with all the different pressures on a growing community, uh, food insecurity remains a significant uh, concern. We uh, are doing some things. For example, we have the second largest convention center uh, in the country. And uh, there's sometimes 100,000 person shows that attend that convention center. And there's often food that's left over. Well, that food uh, that uh, is non-perishable, sometimes perishable food, it is taken to uh, one of our uh, largest uh, food banks second harvest uh, food bank that is used for redistribution sometimes to smaller uh, food pantries in the area so that we can deal with uh, some of the issues related to homelessness or hunger in our community so that we can better feed the children so that they uh, don't go to school hungry. And so it is uh, really um, an ecosystem that we have there that kind of protects itself in the long term. So the food issues that you talked about, when you grew up, were you living off the land? or I mean, I grew up poor. My, my uh, mother uh, was a maid. She cleaned houses for a living. My dad drove a taxi cab. So we never had a lot of money. So in order to leverage what we did have, uh, we always had a garden in the yard. And that helped to uh, augment uh, you know, the need for food in our household. And so it was a very personal thing. As we look today, some of the communities that have uh, food insecurity uh, issues, uh, we're encouraging uh, gardens, community gardens, where uh, the individuals who live there, they volunteer to, to take care of maintaining the crop, planting it, harvesting it, and sharing it within the community itself. And so we're doing those types of things that's very intentional to, to deal with the particular need in our community. It feels like there's a lot of things that as I start to garden more, I'm learning things that my mom just knew. And it feels like maybe you know some things or you grew up doing things. Maybe you can teach some of the kids some stuff. Did you grow up? I mean, you grew up probably doing things that now maybe like some generations just haven't gotten because we haven't, we've been removed from these things. Yes. And, you know, as we live in the urban community, Sometimes those are, that's a skill that, if we're not careful, can be lost. Uh, but again, through the education process, you know, we want our children and future generations to understand their uh, responsibility to make sure that our land remains healthy so that it can uh, grow the kind of crops and the produce that is needed to sustain us as, as human beings. And so, again, we have partnerships with the local school district. Uh, where now we're uh, the teachers uh, are teaching the students about their uh, responsibility to the overall environment, and so I see that connectivity as a as a community as well, uh, and so that's what makes it a high priority. And I believe that uh, with um, the young population, our county is has gotten younger. Uh, you know, the average, uh, that. <laughs> the average age in our uh, MSA, our Metropolitan Statistical Area, is, is now 37. 
Uh, and people don't probably don't think of Florida as a young place, certainly central Florida. Uh, within the state of Florida, the average age now is 41. Uh, so the largest portion of our workforce are now millennials. Uh, and these are things that, uh, which means that they're the largest portion of our uh, voting populace as well. These are things that they're saying is important to them as well. And so as uh, elected uh, individuals or politicians, we have to speak to our overall constituents um, because of the things that they've identified. But it's also the right thing to do. You know, the community gardens, another aspect of them, if, if they're true community gardens versus doing it in your backyard, you're going to have, say, 40 plots in this community garden. So you're going to have 40 different families or individuals that at any one time are interacting with each other. So what I have found in various neighborhoods is that somebody that's two streets over is meeting somebody that they would have known but for the community garden. So it's a good neighborhood builder, too, for people to interact with each other and interact in that way where you're there doing something that you both care about. Yeah, people who listen to this podcast a lot know that almost always, you know, the next, as I told you guys, the next thing I'm going to do is invite you to act on these, these, what the environment means to you. And one of the things that almost always comes out is that before people do it, they often think, well, what about my, my spouse or my kids or my boss? Or, you know, they think, how are these other people, like I can choose to do something, but it'll affect others. And almost always after they start, they start looking at other people as leaders look at other people, which is part of the solution, not part of the problem. And community always is the outcome. It always forms community. When people, if they say, how am I going to do this? And they just analyze without acting. I find that they just analyze forever. But if they start acting, then they start coordinating with people around them and working together. And I didn't even, I didn't even think to ask about how this would affect children or education or things like that. But I'm not surprised if that's happening. It reminds me of there's um. There's a place up here called Harlem Grown, which is a community garden in, in Harlem. And the guy just got a plot that happened to be across. It was like an empty um, a lot that was just overgrown and just junked cars and things in it. And he cleared it out and put a garden in. Then the, an after-school program just happened because the kids helped make it. And when the chard started growing, the kids got to take it home. But then when they came back the next day and he said, how was the chard? The parents didn't know how to cook it. Because it had skipped a gen- you know, the, the grandparents would know, but the parents didn't know. So then it became this whole education thing of how to cook and things like that. And I'm really now I want to hear a year from now, five years from now, ten years from now, what's going on in terms of like kids learning to garden and things like that. I don't know if that's going to happen, but I hope so. You remember the old adage that you can give someone a fish and they'll eat for a day, but if you teach them how to fish, they'll eat for a lifetime yeah. and. To me, same with if they know how to grow some food, uh, you know, grow grow their own crops. Uh, if they ever find themselves in a situation, at least, you know, they have this opportunity to grow some food to sustain themselves. Now I wish I brought some of my arugula from my windowsill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And, you know, we, we uh, uh, in terms of marijuana, <laughs> we have... Are you guys legal there? Yeah. Only for uh, medicinal. medical uh-huh. um, medicinal purposes is marijuana legal, but we uh, we have a marijuana uh, uh, grow grower there in our county as well. You know, one of the few that's uh, approved by the state of Florida, and and even it is uh, playing a role. You know, in terms of the meeting the medical needs of, of people who who need it, uh, who are dealing with debilitating illnesses in, in the state of Florida. So. That's the good news. You've got a lot going on there. So, no, you know, the other thing is there are very few people that haven't grown up in an agriculture family mm-hmm. that are going into agriculture. So we're losing farmers. So educating kids in the opportunities that they might have for a career in agriculture, I think, is an important thing going forward. And we have um, an individual who was successful in the healthcare industry he then started a barbecue restaurant. He was cooking in his garage and then started a very successful barbecue chain. And now he's created a philanthropic arm. I'll go ahead and give him a plug. It's Four Rivers and his uh, philanthropic group is Four Roots. And they have put farms into the high schools, several of the high schools in Orange County, and are teaching kids how to 
or at least think about careers in agriculture. And the city is going to lease them 40 acres of land for a dollar a year. And they want to create an urban farm where kids can come and learn what a farming career would entail. And they're also planning to have a distribution center for food. You don't know how much food just gets wasted that can be utilized. So somewhat like our food banks, but a more immediate delivery type of thing. So there are people doing some interesting things. But I guess my original point is there aren't as many people that are going into agriculture careers today as there once were. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. I have an MBA and I'm, a, I'm an entrepreneur. I like the business side of things. But this stuff is kind of, is a little more heartwarming, I think, especially given what you guys talked about. So of, of your agricultural backgrounds. And so given what motivates you, what you think about, among many, I'm sure, others that you didn't mention, I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do personally yourself to act on your environmental values. To and It doesn't have to – almost everyone when I say this thinks – well, what does the New York Times say that I'm supposed to do? Or what does Greenpeace say that's the biggest thing? And I'm not asking to save the world. It's not, you don't have to fix all the world's problems by yourself overnight. But it's to do something, and it's not something for me, but to do something maybe that reminds you of growing up hunting and fishing or something like that. Well, the two little things I do already that bring me such personal satisfaction uh-huh. are recycling uh-huh. and composting. So... I get excited on recycling day when I get to take out my recycling. <laughs> it's surprisingly receptacle. fun, right? Yes. I, Especially I mean, composting. It's Thursday. I get to take out the recycling. <laughs> and if I, don't, if I accidentally throw something uh, away that should be in recycling, I go fish it out. And what we find, you can't recycle the bags off of newspapers. The plastic bags get hung up in the machines that separate the recycling. So a lot of people will throw those newspapers away, and I can't tell in in their bags. bag. Yeah. I can't tell you how many of those things I've fished out. Um, but also composting is so much fun. That's the to, yeah to take it out, and then you got to you know water it and rake it and do some stuff. But there's a feed store. Uh, by the way, here's a fun fact: you can buy a live chicken or a live duck within one mile of. City Hall in downtown Orlando, oh, wow. uh-huh. Palmer's Feed Store. There's another plug. But you can also buy fishing worms there. So occasionally I get to stop on the way home and buy some worms to drop in the composting, and that just so much fun. You know, in New York, I, I can't compost because I don't have a yard. I can collect my scraps, and I take them to bins at the fire, farmer's market. And here's what I've learned is that – so I go there once a week, which means I've had my compost in my freezer for a week, which means the other people have too. So you're even more committed than I am. Meeting people over compost is like, it's always a fun conversation. It's anyway. Uh, now I, <laughs> you didn't get to hear me say also something, it has to be new, something you're not already doing, but you've revealed how much fun you have doing this. Does anything come to mind? I mean, before you weren't doing that and it sounds like you're glad to do this and it could be just augmenting that doing more. It's just, uh, as long as there's some physically measurable effect to, that you have. And then I'll ask you back a second time to share how it went. Oh, so I don't have to come up with it right now? You do have to come up with it right now. Because <laughs> once you say something, then I'll say, let's make it a smart goal to make it specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, and time-bound. It doesn't have to be for the rest of your life. And it can be really small. Some, I shouldn't have told you I was already doing composting. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, like for me, uh, recently we redid our landscape. Uh-huh. And we were very intentional about using uh, and installing landscaping that will require less water, uh, you know, over time. And that's a big deal in Florida, you know, with trees and what have you. And a moment ago, we talked about uh, our lakes. In our county, there's over a thousand lakes. Mm -hmm. And so we want our lakes to be, you know, these amenities within our neighborhoods that are pristine. So uh, sometimes in terms of composting, uh, I like to get out sometimes and do yard work. And uh, I used to see some of the landscapers, the hired landscapers, they would blow the leaves from the trees and they would blow them down into the storm drain. You know, well, I don't do that. You know, I, you know, when I do it, you know, I blow them, I collect them and then put them out for uh, the uh, recycling uh, waste carriers to pick it up and, you know, they dispose of it appropriately. So we probably can do more of that, I think, um, as individuals and as a community look at 
the type of landscaping that we're installing in our homes. So anything come to mind specific? And the reason I feel comfortable persisting here is that I do this a lot. And almost everybody, when I first ask it, they're like, I don't really know what to do. I mean, some people have listened to the podcast and they come up with songs. Yeah. And specific, measurable, achievable, realistic, time bound, the smart goal idea. I've never come up. I didn't come up with that. But uh, most people at first, they're like, and this is a lot for the listeners, is that people associate doing these things with like being judged and being and like, if it's not good enough, then it's not worth doing. But what I find is that when people, almost everyone has something and they're like, you know what? I have been thinking about doing X or Y or Z. And it's usually when I have people act the second time, almost always they say, I thought I would like this. I liked it even more than I expected. Hence, I persist. So I, I don't know if this goes along the green thing, but I've been actually thinking about encouraging everybody in the city. So I'd have to do it by leadership to pick up some number of pieces of litter every single day. So on your walk, or if you have a goal that you ought to pick up 10 pieces of litter every single day, if the 300,000 people in the city of Orlando all picked up 10 pieces of litter, or the 1.3 million people in the in the Orange County uh, all picked up some number of pieces of litter, we'd be a lot cleaner community, not that we aren't pretty clean as it is. I happen to pick up one piece of trash, at least one piece of trash per day, and sometimes 10. It's just... But I always make sure I pick up at least one. Would you be game to do that for some period of time? Yeah. Okay. Certainly one. Well, yeah. I'm, I, I, I'm going to double you up. I'm going to pick up two. Two. <laughs> uh, yeah, is this out of your yard or is this out of somebody else's yard? You it, picking it, up it's tracks. pretty easy to, to walk <laughs> Edgewater Drive and pick up plenty of litter. Uh, are you game for also doing it? I can do that, Yes. So then, um, can we talk again? What's a good amount of time to get a feel for that you could say, now I've, I know what it's like? You pick. A week, a month? I mean, I've been doing it for years. But I don't want to do years. <laughs> I mean, if you want to keep it up afterward, that's fine. That's up to you. <laughs> you can keep up with us for years uh, doing it. A couple weeks? A month? All right. Yeah. Or maybe how about two months because I'm on vacation. Well, I can pick up trash and wherever you city. are yeah, <laughs> while you're on vacation that's, you can pick up that's trash. right yeah i've been a month is good okay month and yeah i've been in like i often say in new york sadly i don't even usually within feet of walking out my door i have something i can pick up and but also i had reason to be in in texas like hours away from anything at some whistle stop off the train there's trash right there too and but there's people there too and if everyone's picking stuff up it's millions of pieces per trash per day. But I think also, I'll say this not to lead the witnesses or anything, but I think you'll enjoy it in a kind of funny way that, I don't know, it's, and technically you're touching something that's garbage, but I think you, personally, I feel more clean doing that than not doing that in a kind of weird way. Well, I told you I enjoy the recycling and the uh, compost, and so I'm sure I'll enjoy picking up litter as well. All right. And, uh, well, thank you for, for um, agreeing to it. And I'd like to wrap up with a couple questions. One, is there anything I didn't think to ask that's worth bringing up? And the other is any message directly to the listeners? You know, there's one thing that I think we're kind of proud of as a community. Uh, we probably have more concentration of hotel rooms than anywhere else. But we have this Clean the World uh, initiative in our community, Bob and Soap, you know, you know, and it has created a whole I think movement across uh, the, the globe, certainly across North America, uh, where when you go into your hotel room now, you get a much smaller bar of soap than you used to get uh, from years ago. And it was just a lot of waste associated with that. And so now uh, through the Clean the World initiative, they are distributing, uh, redistributing soap uh, really all over the world. Uh, great uh, program that started in our community. Very interesting to hear this stuff. Thank you for sharing that. I'll just add a little bit on the clean world. These are two guys that started in their garage and had been business executives that were just in a hotel and said, I wonder what happens to this leftover soap and went and found out and then figured out a better use and a better way. And they're all over the world now. And uh, we have a lot of social entrepreneurial type of companies in Orlando now that do a lot of different interesting things. Well, Buddy and Jerry, thank you for being on, and I look forward to talking again next time. Okay, thank you. All right. 
I'm rooting for them. The goal for a single person is not to fix all the world's problems all by him or herself, but to act on his or her values. When you do, you will lead. Think of when every mayor, governor, senator, judge, Supreme Court justice, and dare I say, United States president picks up trash and doesn't create trash in the first place. How easy will it be then for hundreds of millions of Americans to follow? In the U.S., Florida will face more results of climate change than probably any place else. Much of it may be underwater within the lifetimes of some listeners. Climate change isn't the only environmental issue. I'm glad to hear that Buddy and Jerry worked on garbage. With Florida's beaches, they also face the problem of ocean garbage. I'm curious about the results. I'm curious to see how others follow their lead. Maybe you. Did you feel inspired too? Then act. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and click to commit to your personal challenge so you can inspire others. Value means better and worse, and living by your values means living better by your values. You may struggle at first, but it's the hero's journey from living by others' values to living by yours. People say that little things add up. I won't argue against it, but what I find counts is acting. Doing something, anything, starts that mindset shift from the debilitating others should act first or making excuses to the empowering I can make a difference, and living by my values improves my life. I don't have to wait for others to act first. I'm looking for leaders, people who will bring what works here in this podcast to communities I haven't reached. Billions of people want to change their behavior. There's room for leadership from personal leadership of just yourself to whatever scale you want. Start by acting and changing yourself. Go to joshuaspodak.com slash podcast and commit to your personal challenge.